Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. We'll be sharing the stories of some of the worst and most horrific murder cases in history with the help of professional criminologists. We're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, we're looking into the mysterious Lord Lucan. I'm going to try and do the intro with my eyes closed next time. Like, memorise oh, yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so, the other week, uh, we I went... I went. I went down to London. I did. Uh, big Apple went to the big C, the big smoke. And producer Alex asked me some questions on stage, and um, one of those questions was, "Can you tell me about the show?" We're two <laughs> best friends, <laughs> yeah. the world and, then, then, and I was like, I really struggled with it so much, and I really just, and I just, we're two best friends entering the world of true crime, <laughs> and we're taking you along for the ride. <laughs> oh. Um, how are you, Helen Anderson? I'm good. I just got back off my holidays. I went to Orlando Disneyland, which was a pre-COVID booked trip, which was postponed. And I just got back, um, had a really great time, went on some great rides. I've been there a few times, but there were a few new rides which are banging. Rise of Resistance, which is Star Wars and Guardians of the Galaxy, which was so much fun. Um, I ate so much food and drank so many margaritas um, and just had a really great time. You're glowing. I'm, I'm you paying for it. Oh, am I? Full of, all the margaritas are just flushing out your pores. Yeah. <laughs> Does wonders for me. You, love, you look lovely. I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous that Helen has other friends. I'm not jealous that she went on holiday with them. I'm not jealous that originally we were going on this holiday and then we didn't. And um, it's a good job because I'm too pregnant to have enjoyed it anyway. But like, it's fine. Good. I'm glad you had a good time. Glad. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you should see her face now. Um, I am so tired now, though. Like, I feel jet lag is always worth coming home for some reason. I think pair that with being, like, like exhausted from just nonstop. Go, go, go. And then long travel day. And then your body clock being five hours behind. So at night time, I can't get to sleep. And then in the morning... I'm doing this really annoying thing and no one believes me when I tell them I can't help it. I'm turning my alarm off when it goes off. So I'll set it for like seven o'clock in the morning. I'll snooze it once and then I'll turn it off and then it will be nine o'clock. I do believe this because I've seen you in the morning. Thank you. But every time I try to tell somebody else that, they just think, bullshit. Do you know what, Helen? Fuck them. I know. But I can't, it's like sleepwalking, but sleep snoozing like I'm definitely not fully I'm not fully conscious and I'm I'm very surprised when I wake up two hours later like how did that just happen I'm here for it um I feel like when we're both on a level of tired things get weird in a good way and I'm kind of hoping that happens today okay no pressure okay (laughs) when will the delirium kick in but yeah apart from that and starting my day later on then I would like to Anyway, uh, I feel like you've got a, you're desperate to tell me a story. She's literally vibrating. Yeah, I, I my mum had a dinner party mm-hmm. with <gasps> with <gasps> yeah, yeah with her friend the Crane Man. Yes, I have Crane answers. Yes, let oh me just my God. let me just see um, if I can. Oh, we've probably texted a bit since then. Let me just see if I can bring up the chat. Yeah, it was very exciting, um, and he had no idea why. We're all so interested in the cranes. Okay. Um, for crane people, it seems like cranes aren't actually that exciting. Okay. Anymore. Explain. I don't get it, personally. Mm-hmm. But um, I didn't... So I actually didn't ask how the cranes were built because I don't, I don't want to know, I've decided. I do. Um, well, somebody very kindly sent me a video oh, okay. um, on Instagram about how cranes work. So okay. I'll send it to you. Okay. I didn't watch it because I've decided, actually, I'm quite enjoying the mystery <laughs> <laughs> about it all. So I just like to believe that um, all the contractors turn up on site and are like, hmm, we need a very big crane here. And they leave little gifts, <laughs> like little cans of oils and like... Uh, like little buckets of screws or whatever and they leave that around where they want the crane to be 
like an offering to the crane gods and then the crane is just there <laughs> oh my god <laughs> got this <laughs> don't act like you wouldn't love it if that, that was would be it really cool right? I, like, I think about them emerging from the ground like war of the worlds but yeah, yeah like, on different like i was going more like jack and the beanstalk vibe but okay, okay. yeah um anyway so what I did ask is, how do you get up there? Mm-hmm. And he did say he has to climb. Fuck. So they climb up and down. And then when they're up there, you get, he said you get two 15-minute breaks and like a half an hour break. So you do have to climb all the way down, like if you need a wee. What? Or if you need a poo. Um, oh, you would it? have to wait for your break and climb all the way down. What if you were desperate, though? It, Mega it's a, desperate. It's a bottle situation. Is it? You just got to go and there's no tiny toilet up there like we thought maybe. But basically, not too far away from us is a place where the cranes live. Right. Like, so this would take away the mystery from us, from, like, from, for me, about how they're built. But, like, the bits of crane, the big, for the really big ones, they live in a little place that is near where I went to high school. Right. And, like... I'm not going to say that we can go, Helen, but I reckon I could probably arrange for us to go. A school trip. Shall we go on a school trip to see where the cranes live? Oh, my God, can we? Yeah. I'd love that. I'll ask him. And then we can report back. We could, this is, yeah, season finale. We could even video it and put it on the Instagram. Oh, my God. Like, in, in, come with us on a field trip. Crane day. Yeah, a, a special. Yeah. But um, yeah, so that was, um, do you know what? Your reaction was actually a bit less than I anticipated and I'm slightly What do you mean? I'm, to, I'm, we might be able to go look at the cranes, Oh, no, I know, I'm buzzing for it. Well, buzz there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what do you I want from me? Was, I wish this was video because <laughs> Ella just put her hands on the desk and sort of flailed Quite gently, to be honest. A bit like Magikarp <laughs> from Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> it was, you looked like you were having a small seizure, not buzzing. <laughs> but I'm excited by the concept of having a school trip to go see cranes and ask a hundred questions. Yeah. So we know a crane man. Watch this space. Okay. Uh, shall we actually do what we come here to do? Yeah. Okay. Let's set the scene. It's late evening in early November 1974 in Belgravia. Local residents are warming up from the chill outside and enjoying a few drinks at their local, the Plumber's Arms. Drinks are flowing and you can hear the chatter from the road outside, but all of a sudden, the pub grows quiet. A frantic and blood-stained woman has run through the door shouting, Murder! Murder! I really wanted to be like, Murder! There's been a murder! But she's not Scottish. She's very much not Scottish. Punters and staff rush to her, laying her down on a small bench by the entrance. As they call the police, she exclaims that her husband has just killed the nanny and tried to kill her. Even more baffling to the group in the pub, her husband is Lord Richard John Bingham, the 7th Earl of Lucan, and she is Lady Veronica Bingham. Lord Lucan was a criminal psychopath whose actions produced one of the great scandals of the 20th century. Lucky Lucan was unlucky in love, unlucky in marriage, and ultimately, we should simply regard him for what he was, which is a murderer. Sparking one of the biggest mysteries of modern criminal history, Lord Lucan had committed an atrocious murder. This is a case with a forgotten victim, a children's nanny, Sandra Rivet, Brutally battered to death. Sandra Rivet was very, very unlucky. She was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and it cost her her life. So let's go back to the start. Lord Richard John Bingham was born into a family of great nobility on the 18th of December 1934 in Marylebone, London. He was the second child and elder son of George Bingham, the sixth Earl of Lucan, and his wife, Caitlin Elizabeth Ann Dawson. The Earl of Lucan title had been handed down for over 300 years and through nine generations, with Richard set to one day inherit the title. As an aside, technically when someone has a title, like Lord, you're supposed to use it. So, you know, like Dame Judi Dench, you'd always call her Dame Judi. 
you know, so for Richard, it should be Lord Bingham. But he killed a woman. So we're just going to call him Richard. Okay. Like Archibald Hall wanted to be called Roy. He doesn't get that privilege because he killed people. You Does you actually, like, do you actually have to call them Lord blah, blah, blah? Well, the police aren't going to come for us because we're not doing it. But, like, yeah, if you're in, yeah, you're right. supposed to. That's the whole point of it. I'd say you'd do it to their face, but... Yeah, but, like, Dame Judy Dench, you know... i just call her Judy Dench, right? Oh, shot to the heart, Helen. Really? I don't want to be sound controversial or disrespectful, but I didn't realise that you had to use the whole, whole thing. I don't think you have to full name her every time, but you could... Dame Judy. Really? Yeah. I never knew that, and it never crossed my mind I'm to, pretty to sure do that. that's a thing. Anyway... Author and writer James Ruddick knows what Richard's childhood was like. I think it was an extremely unconventional childhood. He was born in 1934, went to prep school and uh, was raised by, by a nanny. I think the parents were quite remote. But of course the war intervened and he was sent to America. And I think it was a period of tremendous instability. And I think that there was perhaps a disconnection there. Um, for all of the children in regard to their parents. And then at what must have been a quite um, a critical age for him to be sent halfway across the world to begin again with another family. So in 1940, at the age of six, Richard was evacuated from London with his younger brother Hugh and their two sisters, Francis and Sarah. But unlike so many children who were displaced due to the war, the Bingham children spent the war years in pure luxury living with a millionaireess who had palatial homes in both New York and Florida. He was taken in by the widow of a millionaire banker and, and had the high life. And I think it was a suggestion that that contrasted very strongly with his life in England, in wartime England, with the rationing and so forth, and instilled in him this love of the high life that stayed with him for the rest of his life. By the time he got back to England in 1945, despite five years free from the stress of war and rationing, 11-year-old Richard struggled with the adjustment and suffered problems emotionally. I think he was probably always uh, quite a strange young man, actually. We know that his mother decided he needed to see a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist diagnosed him as having an attachment disorder and suggested that he uh, was given a dog to look after. I think that what uh, the mother probably saw was a very early-stage psychopathy in him. Why don't doctors administer or prescribe dogs more these days it would work it wouldn't, wouldn't it, it? <laughs> although i don't know maybe some of the other cases we've had it's not worked out so well no. no but disorder or no disorder richard was born into nobility and that meant one thing he was going to go to school where his forefathers and their forefathers before them went in his case that was prep school at oxford and then a stint at the obvious one Eton College, the rich man's playground. I don't actually know if that's a thing. I just made that. Uh, not that he went to Eton. That is the rich man's playground. I think they're both true. But in true Etonian style, Richard started to rebel. And whilst popular with his friends, he did poorly academically. He wasn't so into the whole studying thing. Instead, he preferred gaming tables and fast cards to actually doing any hard work. He was a man's man and a massive misogynist. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Criminologist Professor David Wilson is going to tell us exactly how social class can affect the way people choose to behave. Even at Eton in the final year, he was threatened with expulsion because he was gambling so much late at night with other Etonians. He would also skive off lessons. He would disappear, going off to Ascot, putting bets on horses. So already we're building up a picture from the school days of Richard Bingham loving gambling, not particularly interested in hard work. And indeed, a letter survives from this period that Bingham writes to his uncle saying that people who say that money can't buy you happiness are either stupid or speaking as a result of sour grapes. So we've got almost a caricature developing here of this upper-class aristocrat who's got very reactionary views, especially in relation to women, who spends all of his life gambling, driving fast cars. 
He sounds like the worst person ever, doesn't he? Your face is a real picture right now. Helen looks like she's smelled the worst smell. (laughs) (laughs) Just hearing about him. She looks like someone's just dropped a shit right under her face. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't sound great, does he? No, I also want to say that don't most politicians come from being at Eton, which says a lot. Um, A certain kind do, yes. Yeah, we're not going to get into it, but I'm just going to say right there, quickly drop that one in. Mm -hmm. Anyway, anyway, uh, um, I might explain a few things, but anyway, we digress. Yeah, he sounds like the like a terrible human being that I, I really want to like punch in the face with all my rings on. Yeah, like basically, <laughs> Richard don't give a shit. Nah. He's just doing what he wants and God. getting away with it because he can. And he's about to get married to a poor soul, right? Spoilers. Well, I'm just thinking. You know, I'm thinking about the woman that's involved. Well, Later on down the line. Yeah, we're getting there. Okay. Go. You know what I'm like? I'm like, and then what happened? And then what happened? And then what? <laughs> well, he couldn't run away from responsibility forever. As in 1953, Richard's National Service papers arrived. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Richard. Yeah. That meant he would have to join the army for at least 18 months. Luckily for Richard, though, his social standing ruled in his favour... And so, following in his father's footsteps, the 19-year-old headed straight for the elite Coldstream guards. He wasn't a serious soldier. I mean, he came from um, a fairly distinguished line of soldiers. The great-great-great-grandfather had fought at Balaclava and had actually ordered the charge of the Light Brigade. And um, several of his male ancestors had been awarded medals for bravery in various wars, including the First World War. But he showed no inclination as a soldier. I don't think, to be honest, he ever had the discipline for soldiering. When Bingham is in Germany, he finds opportunities to go to the Swiss Alps. He skis, he bobsleighs, he has a wonderful time. But he's best known because of these army days for gambling. He still plays poker. He's known as the best bridge player in the regiment. So again, we're getting this picture of somebody who's privileged and somebody who's not going to particularly settle down. <laughs> She's nodding. Doesn't come across well on a podcast. <laughs> I forget that <laughs> quite often. But it was during his lovely time in the National Service that he met William Shand Kidd. William Shand Kidd. Is how I want to say that. Shand. Shand. Never heard that name. No, me either. I like it, in a way. I don't. It sounds like sand. <laughs> God <laughs> damn it. <laughs> and that is quality podcasting <laughs> right there. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm sorry. I'm very tired. Uh, they soon became fast friends, much to Richard's benefit. The friendship with Shan Kidd was based on Shan Kidd being able to underwrite some of his more spectacular losses. Because even as a young man, you know, he was gambling huge amounts of money. And so he would try to collect rich friends who could bail him out. And that's what Shan Kidd did time after time. User and abuser, social climber, gold digger friend. Well, he's not even social climbing because he's already there. True. But he's just maintaining that, yeah, through other people. No consequences. No. No, he's living his life with no consequences. So when Richard got back from national service, he had a, he got a job, which is a shock. Mm-hmm. Um, got a job with the merchant bank Brandt. But this didn't last long. He kept gambling once he realised that most of the time he could earn more than his yearly salary in just one night's gambling. Whoa. Yeah, so he had the ultimate bachelor lifestyle which is a full diary, gambling events coming out of his ears, women who were interested, and an Aston Martin to drive about the town in. And a martini. Always. And a mink coat. Oh, indubitably. Yeah. <laughs> um, it does actually draw quite a lot of parallels to Archibald Hall. Yeah, it does. Except that he was born rich and yeah. Archibald Hall wasn't. I love the mink coat. Mink coat's never going to be the same again, is it? <laughs> But then Richard got seriously lucky. He earned himself the na- the nickname Lucky Lucan thanks to one gambling event. In a game that lasted over two days, Richard won £20,000, which is the model equivalent of about 200 grand now. Whoa! Yeah. For, so for two nights work. If, I think that, that's the thing with gambling, isn't it? Like when you get those highs, they're highs. And why would you? 
consider that you would consider that your job mm-hmm. why would you get a proper job yeah but it's that's it it's called gambling it's Ooh. so risky it's the nature of the beast isn't it yeah well like anyone who's dreamt of winning a bunch of money richard quits his job Telling a friend, why should I toil in the city when I can win 10 times my annual salary in one game? See where he's coming from, yeah. but I, don't, I still don't think it's very sensible. It's still a bit lazy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like a different world. Um, Brenda Fenton, the wife of a London casino owner, remembers what life was like in the 50s and 60s for the elites. It was just like James Bond. I mean, have you seen Casino Royal? Well, it, it was like that. Um, people very dressy and, and wore jewellery. There were, there were a lot of um, industries on the side, like the jewels would come in with their wares and, and if somebody made a lot of money, they would buy the girlfriend a bit of jewellery or something or they'd make sure that she went to see them the next day and that's the days of the, um, the big jewellers in Monte Carlo. And <laughs> that's and the end of the clip. <laughs> And, and, and what? <laughs> I do. It does. It does sound quite enticing. Doesn't and the it? way that she talks about it, it's just delightful. I just want to have a night in that glitz and glam in the fifties, in like a rolling casino of like mink fur coats and jewels and champagne and, and uh, glitz and glamour. Yeah, Brenda's sold it, isn't she? Yeah, I want like, it. Um, also, when I grow up, I feel like I want to be Brenda. <laughs> oh, yes. And I will finish every sentence with it. And, and uh, <laughs> just leave everyone hanging <laughs> for the rest of the day. Like, what was she going to say? <laughs> Things are about to get even flashier for Richard after John Aspinall opened the Claremont Club in Berkeley Square in 1962. It was soon a second home to Richard alongside his wealthy and well-to-do mates, and they were known as the Lucan set. He was very tall, dark and handsome, with a moustache and a military bearing, and, and um, he was noticeable. Wherever he went, if people knew who he was, they would sort of, you know, notice him, because he would walk in and... Uh, a presence. He was quite a presence. But things were about to change forever for Richard. Now's the bit that you were talking about, spoilers. In 1957... Veronica Duncan, a pretty blonde 18-year-old, moved back to London after spending her childhood in South Africa. She moved back to pursue a career in modelling. Apparently, it was quite clear that she had quite a nervous personality but was also quite competitive and she was set on making a life for herself in the city. So Veronica moved in with her sister Christina and the attractive sisters soon caught the eyes of the Lucan set. Okay. Yep. In January 1963, Christina met and married Richard's friend, William Shand Kidd. So his oh, best Shandy. Yeah, and then only 10 months later, Richard married her sister Veronica at the Holy Trinity Church in London. Here's James Ruddick. I think he married her because he wanted an heir. Um, and I think he thought that he'd got a woman who would be compliant with his will. People say that she was very quiet around him, slightly in awe of him, and I think he liked that. And I think he expected her to sort of know her place and that he would carry on leading his playboy lifestyle and she would stay at home and raise the children. On the 21st of January 1964, Richard's father died at the family home in Belgravia at the age of 65, which meant only one thing. With the death of the sixth Earl of Lucan, He inherits a great deal of money. And of course, he inherits all the class privilege that the title Earl is going to bring. The interesting thing, of course, there are still some pressures on Lucan at this particular point because he's got to produce an heir. So quite clearly, he needs to get uh, Veronica pregnant as quickly as possible. But the photographs from the time when they're together, they're almost scowling out of the photographs. They genuinely do not seem happy in each other's company. They look attractive, they look glamorous, but my gosh, do they sometimes look as if they hate each other. I find the idea of like producing an heir, even in like this day and age, so strange still. Because I mean, this was still, it wasn't even 100 years ago, was it? Like I know, it's mad, isn't and, it? I mean, I've just finished watching bloody 
Ring of Fire. No, House. Uh, what is it? What have I been watching? Game of Thrones thingy. The Game of Thrones spin-off. House of the Dragon. That's it. I've just been finishing watching House of the Dragon, and that is all based around producing an heir to be the next in line to be a king or queen, and that's a fairy tale world, isn't it? That's sort of looked like it's set hundreds and hundreds of years ago and it's just so weird that it's like in the was the 50s 60s now we are in 60s just like people that aren't in the upper classes the aristocracy we don't go well we need to make an heir i must produce an heir so that my estate well like what is the point yeah because it's not like being a lord is a job now, no. is it? Like, his, his job isn't being a lord, is it? Or, like, average people care that much. Yeah. Okay. But they must produce it. No, you're right. It's a very odd concept, actually, isn't it? And it's also not... I can't see how it's, like, nice or enticing for a woman to essentially be breeding stock. Yeah, that's her role. Is to produce him an heir. Even if they looked like they would rather be anywhere else on the outside, Richard and Veronica did end up having three children over the next six years. Francis, George and Camilla. Very regal names. Mm. Surprisingly, Richard, who was now officially Lord Lucan, had allowed Veronica to become a part of his gambling career. She would go and watch him play, but it was from then on that cracks in their relationship began to show. Former crime journalist Bob Strange knows what started to tip the couple over the edge. As time went on, Veronica began to assert her own independence a little more and began to not be completely content to be sitting at home while he was out gambling and began to get worried about the state of the family finances and, and the finances that would care for her children and his, his children in the years to come. They had their seat, which was called the widow's bench, if I remember rightly, um, and she and other wives would, would sit there and, and chit-chat while their husbands were, were busy gambling, sometimes through into the early hours of the morning. Um, Lady Lucan has said since that she didn't mind that, that, she, that that was quite a pleasant way for her to spend her evenings, but all of Lucan's friends at the time recall it being a, a more and more of a source of friction. She was not of the same class as Lord Lucan, didn't have quite the same aristocratic background as Lord Lucan. And we're talking now about a time that, that when that really did matter. The whole marriage was characterised by Lord Lucan thinking, I am an aristocrat, I have this deep, deep family background. Veronica probably is not quite up to my standing in life and she should be grateful that she's married to me and I should be able to do whatever I want. Yeah, charming. Oh my goodness. But that wasn't all. They might have seemed like a glamorous pair out at the clubs, but no one knew what was going on inside the house. So Veronica had had her own psychiatric problems as a child. Mm -hmm. Uh, She'd been bullied at school. She was known as a highly strung child. And as a teenager, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So she was perhaps a bit more of a complex person than Richard had uh, initially realised. I don't think he was sort of intending to marry someone that needed a bit of patience and work yeah. and understanding and compassion because he just wanted this mother. He just wanted the boobs. He just wanted an heir. But she had her own problems and recognised that Richard's addiction to the gambling lifestyle would eventually produce ruin. It became increasingly intolerable to Veronica that despite them having three children... Richard would easily go and blow like 10 grand of an evening and then go around his friends begging to make up for it and then go do the exact same thing next week. Wait, so he would blow 10 grand? Then he'd go around his friends and be like, oh no, I made this 10 grand loss, can you help me out? And they'd give him money. And then he'd just go and do the same thing next time. Wasn't he wealthy though? Yeah, but not you. When you gamble, you don't always stay wealthy, do you? True. What an idiot. So she was prescribed medication for anxiety and for depression, and she'd already been diagnosed as having bipolar. So that would also put pressure on the marriage. But it was documented that there were times that Richard would encourage her to go in the car for a drive in the country, you know, chill out. 
and in that time he would try and have her committed what yeah so not like, a like drive her to a no like she'd be out for a drive right and he'd in, be trying to get men in white coats to come for her by the time she got back oh my god yeah so he doesn't want her around uh, in nine in January 1973, Richard and Veronica's marriage finally came to an end. Thank God. Yeah, Richard immediately moved out of the family home into a five-bedroomed flat just around the corner. I didn't even know flats could have five bedrooms. No, no. <laughs> but the divorce was not an easy process. Over time, Richard started to despise Veronica. Um, I feel like started seems seems like it was already there. To mm. be fair. But um, that was a feeling that would only intensify during the custody battle, which happened in June 1973. Veronica came into her own once they separated. And you see a very different person from this meek young lady who had not had much to say and who had basically followed orders. And you suddenly see this uh, very spirited person who's prepared to fight for her rights and the rights of her children. There was one incident which happened which really ended any possibility of a relationship between them and made Lucan most bitter of all and I, I think was the one trigger that led him to take drastic action. Lady Lucan suddenly sprung on him and on the hearing some stories of uh, sexual misdemeanours that Lord Lucan had perpetrated during the course of their marriage and he felt this was the ultimate betrayal. He had some sexual tastes which were, at the time, slightly unusual. He encouraged her to exercise in a rubber exercise suit that he bought her before bedtime each night. And he kept a little cane in the wardrobe of their bedroom. And Lady Lucan had very carefully documented these instances of, of slight, unusual behaviour. And that was the one thing that he never could forgive her for that that what he regarded as a, as a deep personal betrayal he absolutely did think he was going to win the custody battle even though there was a presumption at that time within the courts that custody should go to the mother and not to the father but lucan spared no expense he hired the best barrister in the country the custody hearing itself lasted for a number of days, but even at the end of that, um, and it was going to cost, because remember, he was also paying for Veronica's court fees as well. At the end, the hit Lucan's barrister throws in the towel, custody goes to Veronica, and Lucan is left with a bill of at least £40,000, which is a substantial amount of money in the 1970s. Wasn't that a lot to take in? First of all, he's got his knickers in a twist because she's just exposed his kinks and he's embarrassed by it. She's kink shaming him. She is. And he's annoyed because he's actually like hearing it out loud and now everyone else knows. <laughs> it's a good kink though, isn't it? Exercising in a rubber suit. Get all sweaty and smelly yeah. and then go to bed. What? <laughs> and what was the other one? He had a little cane. <laughs> I mean, that's... Yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, he did. I mean, what is that nowadays? Like... Yeah, like, little, this, little, like <laughs> among the aristocracy, among the elites, you just would... It's just not done. Yeah, but, you know... It's just not done. In, well, it probably is done behind closed doors. I bet they're up to all kind of freaky shit. Yeah, but, like, think about it. In the aristocracy, I think that makes it kind of a little bit more... As he gets his cane out. Ooh. Little bit... Ooh, Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> <laughs> but posh, so it'd be like Fifty Shades of Tweed. <laughs> Richard's lost custody. Um, and he's also left with the bill of like 40 grand, which is a lot of money in those days. But also, gamblers don't like to lose and they certainly oh don't God, like to lose yes. money, do they? So custody of the children's gone to Veronica, but only if she employed a nanny to help her out with the children. That was a condition okay. of the custody agreement. Of course, Veronica obliged, and in September 1974, she hired Sandra Rivett, a bubbly redhead who was originally a hairdresser. She didn't have much in the way of nannying qualifications, but Veronica liked her. Sandra was just a really pleasant, sweet girl um, who'd come from an ordinary working family, um, and um, she'd done various jobs. She'd been a hairdresser and so forth. 
But um, she loved children and um, she decided that she wanted to be a nanny. From looking after children nearby in Belgravia, she got to know Lady Lucan. It was one of the last decisions that Sandra would ever make. After being the Lucan children's nanny for just two months, Sandra would arrive at work on the 7th of November in 1974, never to return home. Apparently, she wasn't supposed to be working that day either. She'd swapped her her days off around. Yeah, so she wasn't wasn't supposed to be scheduled to work that day. Um, But she did. And I also think it's quite a testament to somebody who would sacrifice time with their own children to look after somebody else's children yeah. to make sure that their children were able yeah. to have a good life. Weird, like, yeah. So Veronica had a habit of making a cup of tea before bed every night mm-hmm. around 9pm. And on that Thursday evening, though, Sandra was still at the Lucan's home. And so she offered to make the tea for her. That's nice. Lovely. She gathered the cups and saucers and made her way downstairs to the basement kitchen. It's about quarter to nine at night. Uh, Sandra Rivet goes down the few flights of uh, stairs to go to where she can make a cup of tea. She tries to switch on the light into the kitchen, but can't do so because someone has removed the bulb that would light up the kitchen. As she switches, tries to switch on the light, Sandra is attacked, viciously attacked, uh, about the head by an assailant, and there are a number of blows to her head which eventually are going to kill her. Oh my gosh! Yeah. In the kitchen. In the dark. Oh, it's not what. That's the horrible. Yeah, it's brutal. Uh, dark is being in the dark and a light not working is scary and frustrating as it is. A number of blows and to then head. And then having someone just come out of the dark. Ooh. Poor woman. My gosh. After a while, Veronica started to feel uneasy that Sandra had been gone for so long. So she went to oh go no. and she went to go and look for her. But as she walked down the dark steps to the basement, she's struck down by a hard blow to <gasps> the head. Who is doing this? And what she said to me when I interviewed her was that she called Sandra, Sandra twice. And then this figure came at her in the dark and she was bashed on the, at the front, here, the front of the head, uh, with an upside down V, two severe blows. Now these were the kind of blows that were so severe they'd killed Sandra. Um, But they didn't kill Veronica. They didn't kill Veronica because horrifically the murder weapon which was a piece of lead piping was already bent from the severity of the blows to Sandra that meant it wasn't working against Veronica it didn't have the same amount of force oh my god yeah and like it's like you gotta put some fucking force behind that to get a lead pipe to bend so the assailant gave up with the pipe dropped it and attempted to strangle her instead (gasps) Crime writer Linda Stratman interviewed Veronica and knows what happened next. Someone tried to throttle her, they tried to gouge her eye out, they pushed gloved fingers down her throat to stop her from screaming, and she just fought for her life. She grabbed hold of the man's testicles and squeezed them, and this shocked him, and they just fell into a heap on the floor. And then she realised who it was. It was her husband. Let that sink in for a second. I will say that is one thing that we have as power is grabbing the testicles. Go for the balls. Go for yeah. the balls. But with all that going on to even have the mindset to, to do, do that. that. I wonder if she knew it was him when it was happening. Because I don't know about you, but do you, you know, it sounds strange, but you can, you recognise your own partners like breathing and how they breathe. I don't think in that, in the throes of that moment, no. I don't no? think you would. No, because you're going to be too busy thinking okay, this yeah, person's yeah, yeah. trying to kill me. I need to try and live. So it was only after they'd dropped to the floor that she realised this is him. And I think it's also important to note that um, Sandra and Veronica had a similar height and build. Okay. Um, so they looks-wise, they were completely different. Mm-hmm. Sandra was a redhead, Veronica's blonde, but height and sort of build-wise, the they're same. fairly similar. So in the dark, as they're coming down the stairs in the dark, you wouldn't necessarily know 
one from the other and if you're expecting one person you see someone who's of a similar height and build to them you're gonna think that's the person I'm I'm out for and also if you're doing something like that you want to get it over and done with and so you act kind of as quickly as possible yeah exactly there's no yeah time for assessment yep so with the nanny dead Sandra's dead and Veronica only injured now a witness to the crime Mm -hmm. Richard is in trouble big trouble yeah luckily Veronica could sense that and she did a really clever thing and tried to play for time right uh, to work out how to get out of this so she asked Richard where Sandra was and Richard admitted that he'd killed her. Whoa. He then helped Veronica upstairs and asked her if she'd be willing to take an overdose of her sleeping tablets. Would you mind just killing yourself, please? Because I have failed. The audacity. Like, what? Who is this man? Yeah, I know. What do you do? But, um... So he's taken her upstairs. He wants her to take an overdose of her sleeping tablets. She lays down on the bed, but that her their eldest daughter saw them there at the time. So that's another witness mm-hmm. who can put Richard at yep. the scene. Um, but they sent her back to bed. Sent her back to her bedroom. Everything's mm-hmm. okay. Don't worry. Go back to bed. Um, Veronica wanted said she wanted to bathe the wounds on her head first. Mm-hmm. So... He went into the bathroom and whilst the taps were running, Mm -hmm. she crept as quickly and quietly as she could out of the door and then ran. Oh, yes. Yeah, and she ran to the pub down the road and that's when she was able to raise the alarm. There's been a murder. Clever. Yeah. Sandra, not Sandra, Sandra's dead. Um, Sergeant Don Baker of the Metropolitan Police was the first on the scene. At that time, I was a serving police officer. I was a uniform sergeant at Gerald Road Police Station, which covers Belgravia. With a PC, I went to the Plumber's Arms. On entry, I saw a lady, who I now know to be Lady Lucan, lying on a bench just inside the front door. She was ranting and raving, and I calmed her down and spoke to her, and I said, how did you obtain these injuries? There were several scalp wounds and blood was running down her forehead and she said my husband did it and as she left the premises she turned around and in a very casual way said oh and he's killed the maid a bit of a shock at the time i find it uh, i know that she will have had a lot going on her brain's probably really scrambled but to just be like oh and he's killed the maid yeah by the way lead with that yeah you'd that defo come first. Yeah. She she's he's killed the maid and then he tried to kill me. Yeah. The police went back to Veronica's house and discovered a horrific crime scene. The walls of the kitchen and stairway were covered with blood. And the source of the blood, they found a large mail bag sitting in the kitchen doorway with a pale white arm sticking out of it. There was a lot of areas that were covered in blood but we didn't see anybody at all in the rooms. I said to the PC that with the amount of blood we've seen and the story we've heard, we should be able to find a body in this place. At the time, I put my foot on a bag. It was a US mail sack. And as I did so, a girl I now know to be Sandra Rivet, her arm came out with a wristwatch on. I realized that she was dead from the, the, the temperature of her arm. There was no movement. There was no chance of her being alive. I did not open the bag any further. It's horrible, isn't it? Yeah. So there was blood absolutely everywhere. Oh. But um, you can actually Google the crime scene if you've got a strong stomach. And I'm not exaggerating. What is it? What should I write in? Uh, you could write Lord Lucan crime scene. As if this is on as if this is on the internet. Hang on. Oh fuck. Fuck! That is a lot of blood. Oh my god. Yeah. And that's the bag. And it's on the walls. It's on the floor. Oh my it's on the lord. Doors. Oh look at her. Oh man. Lord Lucan. Yeah. So he looks like a Anyway, anyway, there's, anyway, no, there's anyway. no words. Yeah, you can yeah. look at it. It's it, yeah, it, it's it quite literally takes the words out of yeah, your mouth. Yeah, Christ. 
But luckily for the police, even though there was no DNA profiling at the time, mm-hmm. they could work out that Veronica had t- blood type A and Sandra had blood type B. So they could work out the difference in the blood. Okay. The stairs were mostly covered in type A blood, which was Veronica's, mm-hmm. and the basement kitchen was covered in type B blood. So this backed up Veronica's account of what happened. Mm-hmm. And an arrest warrant was immediately issued for Richard. As Apparently, as he was a suspected flight risk, officers were sent to watch airports and harbours. Right. Is he... Okay. Yeah, but police... This doesn't quite add up for me. You'll find out why. But they they've, they forgot about the roads. They didn't... Oh, yeah. Uh, it's not just that, but as they were ordering surveillance... Richard was driving down the A27 to Mm -hmm. Uckfield in Sussex and the home of fellow gambler Ian Maxwell Scott. Immediately on leaving the house, Lucan was obviously in a state of shock. Uh, He ran around the corner to a phone box. Um, He phoned up the mother of a friend of of Francis, his daughter, uh, with the the idea of asking her to go around to the house because he didn't want the children to come downstairs and find the body in the basement. But he wasn't able to to raise this lady on the phone, so he then phoned his mother. And she said that he was incoherent with shock and that he mumbled a a garbled story about an attack at the house and could she come round as soon as possible to look after the children. He then got in his car and drove down to uh, Uckfield in Sussex. Lord Lucan had borrowed a friend's car. His own car worked perfectly well and he could have used it, but he wanted to transport a dead body in the boot and he very wisely decided that he was going to do that with a car that didn't belong to him so that if there was any suspicion there wouldn't be any forensic traces that the police could find. So he's trying to be smart about this. Ian Maxwell Scott wasn't home that night, but his wife Susan was, and she was happy to open the door to Richard, who explained what he'd been through from his quite strange point of view. Which was? Yeah. So it was actually... The story he told was the plot of a very famous television series at the time called The Fugitive. Right. The sort of the plot of The Fugitive is that a man comes home to his house uh, to find his wife being attacked by a killer and the killer escapes and the husband gets accused of being the killer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I can so, see where he's going with this. Yeah, he's trying to get out of it, but like, you know, that's a storyline that's quite prevalent at the time. <laughs> so, She'd be like, Isn't that, that sounds familiar. That sounds like you, what, what are the what? odds? <laughs> what are the odds of that happening again? People are getting too inspired by what they see on TV these days. Yeah. Think of the children. <laughs> what somebody think of the children? So basically Richard was rehashing a really popular TV storyline mm-hmm. in the hopes that it would be believable enough to let him get off the hook okay so he told susan that he'd been driving by the house minding his own business when he saw veronica fighting a man in the basement yeah right yeah (laughs) a man that can see through road yeah and brick (laughs) (laughs) yeah the the floor is right there in the storyline but we'll continue according to him he'd rushed into the house to help but the man quickly ran away from the basement Mm-hmm. He then said that Veronica accused him of hiring a man to kill her and pointed to the sack in the corner. Then the man he'd hired had got the wrong woman. Okay. But, like, thankfully, nobody was buying that because it sounds completely fucking ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so, police did tests of the sight line outside. <laughs> it's so stupid. Um,. And they found that you'd have to be lying completely flat on the floor. (laughs) Like completely flat on the floor on the pavement outside to have to be able to see anything. Okay. And also let's let's remind her that there was no light bulb in there, so Yeah. And which is evidence because it's not there. (laughs) Yeah. So in the dark, he's he's driving past flat on his belly on the pavement and saw the man attacking. Veronica. In the dark. In the dark. Yeah. Okay. It's, once again, the parallels between Archibald and I know, I know. This is, like, 
the elite aren't clever. <laughs> we know this. Yeah. Wow. Richard stayed with Susan in Uckfield for over two hours, getting his financial and personal affairs in order. Mm-hmm. He writes two letters in that time. One is to his bestie, Bill Shand Kid, asking him to sell some of his family possessions at Christie's to pay off his debts. Okay. And another letter is to his brother-in-law, explaining that he's completely innocent, but to let him know that Veronica is definitely going to blame him. Which is... Okay. That's not suspicious at all. Nope. He also then called his mother, who had collected the children from the murder house. She was now accompanied by a policeman... And when she asked if he would like to speak to him, Richard said, no, not now. I'll ring them in the morning. And he hung hung up. Oh, so this is the bit that doesn't sit right with me. Yeah. So they think he's a flight risk and they're watching the harbours and the airports, but not the roads. Mm -hmm. And then they just waited. And they they just didn't go out to get him. They did nothing. This is so shocking to me. Like, they 100% just believed that in the morning he'd walk into the Belgrave Road police station with, like, a statement and a solicitor. Do you think it might be because of his, like, social standing? Absolutely. That they think, that they think he might take the high road and be like, yes, I'm, I'm to blame. Here I am with my lawyers and well, solicitors and here we are being a good man, pip, pip. They're probably like, oh, he's got enough money to pay a good solicitor to come up with a better story than yeah. he was lying flat on the floor while driving and... Right. So through the basement in the dark. I don't know. It doesn't sit right with me. No. So, I mean, obviously, Richard didn't walk into Belgrave Road Police Station with a prepared statement and solicitor in the morning. No. No. Just five hours after the murder of Sandra Rivett, Richard left Susan's and disappeared into the night. Okay. And that would be the last time that Lord Lucan was ever seen. What? So he's still out there? He's never been found no way how wait i'll get it because that's the most it's, it's baffling so this oh my is, gosh the story is just starting really oh, fuck. yeah right so police searched with no avail to find richard they found a blue ford corsair that he'd borrowed from a friend a couple of weeks before the attack um and that had been abandoned in new haven in east sussex and it had loads of evidence in there so they found both type A and type B blood. Now remember, there's no DNA profiling at this point, so they can't say they can't match it to Veronica and Sandra, but they can say that they're the ty- same blood types okay. as Veronica and Sandra, which is a hell of a coincidence, right? Especially when you then team it from the fact that they also found fibers from clothing that matched to fibers in the house on the night of the attack, a page from a notebook which matched a notebook re- Richard had previously written the letters on, mm-hmm. and most damning of all. They found a metal pipe in the boot. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, like, literally everything, all fingers are pointed to Richard. Right. Yeah. But he's nowhere. Hey, they can't find him. He's nowhere to be found. I act, I must admit, I act very surprised by this because of shows like, is it Hunted? What's yeah. the one we talk about a lot? Hunted. Where, oh, what would we where, do? Which I really feel like we should be invited on it. And would be terrible We'd, at it. I, for, yeah, we would. Yeah. Um, because I'm like, oh, we could try really hard. I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd love to try it, but obviously they didn't have that tech back then in the 70s, and everything wasn't digital or like there wasn't no. cameras and everything wasn't linked. Everything was like done by paper. I it? also think that someone like Lord Lucan, Richard Bingham, I think someone like him, he's gambling all the time, like he's racking up debts, he's paying them off, he's racking up. He, I think that he would have some kind of escape plan Yeah. anyway, like just from that kind of lifestyle. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's a like man a man of- like that who's looking at, he's really, we know he's only looking out for himself and his best interests. Yeah, and that's been a yeah. prevalent for his entire life. It's that's just my like theory. He does what he wants, when he wants, doesn't give a fuck about anyone else. Like he's just had that from... A teenager, hasn't he? Yeah, so. exactly. So that's my theory. That's my instinct that okay. that he would know he would have a plan how to disappear. Um, but obviously, with if you can't if you don't have your suspect, you can't have a full trial. No. So he's nowhere to be found, and that made it impossible to get justice for Sandra Rivet and her family. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, she's got kids. Mm. Um, so an inquest into Sandra's murder began on the 16th of June 1975 at Westminster Coroner's Court. 
The inquest was uh, a real oddity in English law. It was the last time that a, a coroner's jury were allowed to bring in a verdict naming a murderer. They named Lord Luke and, as the killer of Sandra Rivet. And that must have been of some comfort to Sandra of its family that actually they had a conclusion of sorts. But of course, the main participant in the entire event, Lord Lucan himself, was not there. Nobody knew where he was. It was pretty obvious by that time that he had made a completely clean getaway. I can't see how that is comforting, to mm. be honest, because it's like, yeah, we know he did it, but we can't do anything about it because we don't know where he is. Yeah. Lord Lucan was named as the murderer in the inquest of Sandra Rivet. However, as no one can find him, he's never been formally convicted of the crime. I just think it's mad that he's probably still out there. Oh, maybe not now. He probably would have died by now, but... Well, okay, so... Okay. In October 1999, Lord Richard John Bingham, 7th Earl of Lucan, Mm -hmm. was declared officially dead by Britain's High Court because he'd been missing with no trace for a certain amount of time. Oh, yeah. Like you're still alone if you don't... Yeah, so he'd been missing with no trace for 25 years. So they've declared him officially dead. Uh, After a lifetime of gambling, his estate was valued at 15 grand. Fuck. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I got it. So he's disappeared. His family get nothing, basically. Uh, what yeah. happened to his kids then? So who well, took his... So the official death certificate wasn't issued until the 3rd of February 2016 and it was only then that his son, Lord George Bingham, could inherit the title of the 8th Earl of Lucan. Okay, so but with the, no money. Basically. So he's now inherited that title, but only in 2016. Um, he's He could very well still be out there. Okay, so he was born in December 1934. So he would be 87. Well, he could still be alive. In this day and age with modern medicine, and let's face it, if he did disappear, he's probably got some money stashed away somewhere. He He could very well still be alive. But how would he do anything? Like, how would he get a house? How would he get medical care? It's the 70s. There's no... There's but no... even now, like, if he would he have changed his name? Do you think? Absolutely. Well, yeah, you'd be really foolish to be like, uh, "My name's Richard Bingham, but not that guy." <laughs> You're like, obviously, yeah. he's changed his name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh no, not not the Lord that killed somebody. No, no, that's not me. No, no, no. I'm a different Richard Bingham <laughs> with the same birthday and face. <laughs> what a coincidence! Yeah. <laughs> So while I was researching this, because it is baffling that somebody can just go missing. And I don't think that could happen today. No. But 1974, when the murder took place, there was no, there's no DNA profiling. Mm-hmm. Um, there's it's no CCTV pro- everywhere. Yeah, it's probably a lot. Is it? There aren't electronic records. So like if they run your passport, it's not going to pop up on a computer to say that you're wanted for a crime. Mm-hmm. Um but also it's probably easier to like stow away on a boat. Because he could have got a runner, done a runner, got on a plane before the news got out. Yeah, exactly. Because everywhere has to be notified. Well, also where we are, the UK, and he's down south, he's in London. Mm -hmm. He could drive to Portsmouth or um, like Dover, get a boat to France Mm -hmm. and then disappear. You could go anywhere from there, get planes, trains, automobiles, like... Yeah, it could be anywhere right now. Well, so... Oh, oh, I feel like you've got an answer. Well, no, I I don't, but I do have some very interesting nuggets. Okay, nugget away. So, he's officially dead. Lord Luke, lucky Lord Lucan, Richard Bingham, he's officially, officially dead. And I'm using air quotes here. Okay. But over the decades, so since he's disappeared, there's been a lot of conspiracy about what happened to him. Mm-hmm. And realistically, we might never really know. And time is running out to, I think, to, to know for sure what happened. But one person who is never going to give up finding Richard, um, who I found was doing some research, is Sandra Rivett's son, oh. Neil Berriman. So Neil's been working for years to ensure that the real victim of Lord Lucan's story, his mother, Sandra, is not forgotten. And I think that's really important to note is that 
for it, the, the actual the sort of the scandal of this case the fact that he that Lord Lucan disappeared mm-hmm. has really overshadowed the fact that he His, killed a, an innocent yeah. woman and he literally killed an innocent woman by mistake yeah like she died for literally no reason she was completely innocent and um so he, Neil wants to make sure that nobody forgets that and also, he wants justice for his mum. Yeah, you would. Yeah, actually, you would. I mean, even think the more I think about it, the more I'm like, actually, I think I would be doing exactly mm-hmm. what Neil is doing. Yeah. Um. So he has been investigating the police files from the time he's been collecting stories from everybody who is involved, like uh, friends of the Lucans, uh, police officers who were working at the time, mm-hmm. people who were involved with the investigation, people who were at the pub. Um, and he's been spending years researching the whereabouts Mm -hmm. of Richard Bingham so in January 2020 uh, news stories broke that Neil had allegedly found Richard Bingham as a seriously ill man at the age of 85 living in Australia and awaiting surgery now what I couldn't find um, is the outcome so he's reported it that you know, this guy is living under a false identity. He's killed someone. He's killed my mum. And in theory, that should be investigated. But what I couldn't find during my research was the outcome. Because he didn't report the outcome because he killed him. No. No. Oh, okay. No. That would be very dramatic. No, but that's what I was thinking. Is like he found him. No, because Neil wants scene. justice. Neil wants him to be in prison. Oh, sorry. It's not. It's not like Game of Thrones, is it? It's no, like eye for an eye. No, no. This is real life. I know. It's real life. It doesn't sound. I like know, real but life. like this whole story is like I'm picturing it like a like, like a movie now in my brain. It's so mad that this has just happened. This has happened. It is. It's baffling. So, it, like, I'm dramatising it now. So, so, sorry, he didn't do anything. So, allegedly, a police investigation was going to happen. All okay. I can think is that either it hasn't happened or something has got in the way mm-hmm. of that investigation happening or the results being found. So, I don't know. But you can read through Neil's findings because he's got a website. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really interesting. There's the police report and everything. He's redacted some of the stuff to protect um the police who are working on the case because obviously they're just doing their job mm-hmm. um but yeah so neil has a website lord com. it's got a lovely cool. little picture on there you can see him meet neil hang on hello neil hi neil he's a builder oh yeah and he's doing this so you can read all about that on the internet um, so we're waiting on updates from Neil. He's, he's he's said that he'll keep the website updated as he moves forward. But in the meantime, the rumours about Lord Lucan's whereabouts are still swirling. Well, and that was the case of Lord Lucan. <laughs> Helen's mouth is agape. I feel unsatisfied. There's no justice. Yeah. It feels like this is just, we've not shut the book on this case. How bad do you want to go to the Limpopo River, though, and see if he's there? Yeah. Yeah. I just, it's not fair. It's not. It's outrageous, and it's maddening, and it's like, and it's just generally fucking annoying. Yeah. Yeah, that he could just get away with it. But also, God, it's like something out of Cluedo, isn't it? Or like a, it sounds like an Agatha Christie it doesn't Novel. seem like a real thing no. at all. And you know what? It takes me back to Archibald. Uh, these people that are like rich, high class. They want that. Li- they've got that lifestyle. That's who they are. That's who they are. like. Well, uh, Archibald maybe not so much, but yeah. Well, he it was the lifestyle he wanted. Yeah, but what I hate about it, and I think why a lot of why a lot of like the rich get a bad rep is because they are just fucking dickheads. They just do what they want. They don't care. Money can buy you anything. Freedom, women, power. Passports. Passports. And documentation. Everything that you want. If you do something shady and bad, you can just pay your way out of it. And it just it sickens me to think that it's just so unjust. It's just so unjust. It's not fair. I think it will bother me forever to not know what happened to him. Because, you know, like the um, one guy said, he could well have, like, 
tried jumping off the boat to swim somewhere else and got caught up in the... He might not have made it far. Yeah. He might still be out there. He might not be alive anymore. Somebody must know something. Yeah. About where he went. But the really smart thing to do would be to tell absolutely nobody. Just take a new identity as soon as he left that house. Disappear. Yeah. But that was the case of Lord Lucan. Next time on Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're looking into the real-life Iceman, Richard Kuklinski. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks goes to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios.